From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. This week on the show, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers talk to former Congressman Beto O'Rourke about Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris as his running mate. Then, Congressman and Dr. Michael Burgess, a Republican who represents most of Denton County, joins the show to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic as the school year begins across North Texas. Later, Julie and Gromer preview what they expect at this week's Democratic National Convention. Former Vice President Joe Biden will accept the Democratic nomination for president this week as the DNC gets started virtually Monday night. Last Wednesday, Biden announced his running mate would be Senator Kamala Harris of California, Harris was elected to the Senate in 2016 and previously served as California's Attorney General. She mounted her own bid for the Democratic nomination, but dropped out of the primary in December. Another candidate who dropped out of that primary, former Congressman from El Paso, Beto O'Rourke, focused his attention elsewhere after ending his bid. He launched Powered by People, an organization focused on flipping the Texas House. Here's the former U.S. Senate candidate with Julian Gromer. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you. And and though we can't be together in person, it's nice to see you all through a screen. It's nice to see you too. And Congressman, what do you think of the pick? Is it what you expected? You know, I didn't know what to expect. There there were so many extraordinary contenders from Susan Rice to Karen Bass to Governor Whitmer to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, But I think Kamala Harris is the right choice. And as you may know, through our organization, Powered by People, we've been calling Texas voters over the last couple of months. We've made more than two and a half million phone calls. And we did a big phone bank last night, made 185,000 phone calls. And I made those calls, my volunteers made those calls. The feedback that we got on Kamala was very positive. I I think she's gonna generate even more excitement up and down the ticket, which is good for Joe Biden and his chances to win the 38 electoral college votes in Texas. But then it's also excellent for these state house candidates, you know, I think about Elisa Simmons in Tarrant County, for example, who have a chance to form a Democratic majority in the state house of Texas for the first time in 20 years. So a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. I think that's going to end up expanding the electorate and improving Democrats' performance in Texas. So, Beto, Texas is a big state. What specifically do you think Harris brings to the ticket that will help Democrats here in Texas? First, there's the historical nature of her campaign. We all know, at least those of us in the Democratic Party, that the success of our party has largely been led and driven by black women. And yet black women have often not been reflected in the positions of power and public trust through the Democratic Party. So to have a black woman in an historical first as a nominee for vice president is electrifying, and not just to black Texans, although there are more registered black voters in Texas than there are in any other state, Gromer. So that's that's a significant thing to think about in, as you mentioned, a very large state. But but it's also uh, generating electricity and energy beyond the, the demographics. I think Joe Biden is a steady hand on the tiller. He, he represents uh, civility and compassion and empathy that have been sorely missing from this last administration. All of those are, are wonderful pluses. Uh, Kamala brings a, a level of excitement and energy and enthusiasm. She's extraordinarily charismatic, uh, generates uh, a lot of buzz along the trail, and we would love to see her campaign 
throughout Texas, where I know that she would not only help Joe Biden, she'd help some of those down-ballot candidates, including those who are running for the state house as well. Now, right now, polls show President Trump and former Vice President Biden neck and neck in Texas. What do they really have to do here to try and flip the state? I think this is Joe Biden's to lose. Uh, you saw in 2018, a, a midterm year that typically favors Republican turnout over Democratic turnout. We got within two and a half points of Ted Cruz. And though we didn't win, we did see Colin Allred win his race, a Democrat defeating a long-serving Republican in North Texas and Southeast Texas. Lizzie Panel Fletcher did the same thing. 12 new state house reps, all Democrats defeating Republicans. And in Harris County, 17 African-American women elected to judicial positions. That, that is indicative of the energy and the excitement and the expansion of the electorate. Now we're in a presidential election cycle, which tends to boost Democratic voter turnout. You have the, the horrible job that Donald Trump has done really throughout his administration, but in particular in the response to COVID, where more than 165,000 of our fellow Americans have died. Greg Abbott doing just as bad a job here in Texas. In other words, uh, if you continue that Democratic voter surge and you meet that with the very poor performance of those in elected office Republicans right now, you not only have Democrats, but you have independents and you have quite a number of disaffected Republicans. Our job is to reach out to them and bring them in. And that's why we're calling literally every likely voter in the state of Texas over the next two and a half months before Election Day to make sure that we have the biggest turnout Texas has ever seen. That's how Joe Biden wins. And, and Texas, wouldn't it be wonderful if Texas delivered it for him with these 38 electoral college votes? So, Ben, as you know, for both parties, just set the presidential election aside. The biggest prize is probably the Texas House. Where is uh, the Powered by People initiative at in terms of your effort there in, in flipping the House to Democrats? We are literally calling every likely Democratic voter in every one of the 150 state House districts. As you know, we are only Democrats, we're only nine seats down from commanding majority for the first time in 20 years. And as you all probably also know, Texas has recently ranked 50th in voter turnout, not because we love democracy less than other states, but because of the racial gerrymandering, the voter ID laws, the voter suppression tactics employed by the Republican majority. With Democrats having a seat at the table, and after this census, three new congressional districts being drawn into the state, they can bring voters in, especially those black and brown voters that have long been excluded. So nine seats down, and guess what? I won more votes than Ted Cruz did in nine of those districts that we have to pick up. So not only can we do this, you could almost argue we have done this before, and when you add to that the extraordinary candidates that we have, I mentioned Elisa Simmons, you've got Brandy Chambers, Joanna Katnack, Joe Drago, Elizabeth Beck. Um, they're just extraordinary men and, and a lot of women and a lot of women of color who are running right now. I think that that energy and that excitement is going to extend to performance on the ballot, even though our government is forcing many of us to vote in person in the midst of the deadliest pandemic of the last 102 years. I think you saw in the primary voting turnout, in the primary runoff voting turnout, that the electorate is ready to turn out, even though we have very tough conditions right now. So that leaves me very optimistic and very hopeful for a positive performance on the 3rd of November.
Congressman, in the short time we have left, you're familiar with running a Senate campaign in Texas. What does MJ Hager have to do? She's got her work cut out for her. You know, she had to contend with a, a runoff election from uh, an extraordinary candidate in, in Royce, which leaves her precious little time to build the volunteer base and raise the money necessary. But John Cornyn is uniquely vulnerable. He is joined at the hip with Donald Trump. He's his greatest enabler in the United States Senate. I think if MJ Hager can get the point across that John Cornyn is a Trump senator and not a senator for the people of Texas, she has a great shot of winning this race. But she's got to get that message out to everyone in every one of the 254 counties of Texas. All right, just quickly, uh, Beto, do you have a major speaking role at this week's Democratic National Convention? Not a major one. I'm, I'm going to join a roundtable of other runner-up uh, candidates who are contending for the nomination. And I'll be joined by my fellow Texan, okay. uh, Julian Castro. But, but, Gromer, I think the spirit of your question is, does the DNC and the National Democratic Party get how important Texas is? The short answer is no. They're not going to ride to our rescue. There's no cavalry coming to, to help us at the end of the day. Texans have to win Texas. But that's the way it's always been. And I'm great with that. And, and I think we're going to win and we're going to surprise the Democratic Party nationally. and We're going to surprise this country. Congressman Beto O'Rourke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both. Representative Michael Burgess is the senior most medical doctor in Congress, having received his M.D. from the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. His district covers most of Denton County and part of northern Tarrant County. As the positivity rate for COVID-19 testing hovers above 10 percent, parents and educators are faced with decisions about virtual or in-person learning. A handful of North Texas school districts allowed students on campus last week, and this week dozens more will follow. Back to Julian Gromer with Congressman Burgess. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you, Julie Cromer. Been a while. It's been a while. As a doctor, with all the cases in Texas, do you think it's safe for kids to go back to school? The short answer is yes. The actual numbers as it affects that age demographic are smaller than what they are for, for other ages. But, you know, here's the bottom line. In-person learning in school is, is critically important. And while it may not be correct in every jurisdiction, in every school district in the state, and a lot of it will have to be balanced with what's happening on the ground. In general, in-person learning is so important that it needs to move forward. Dr. Burgess, other countries have seemed to have gotten control of COVID-19. America seemed to have been caught flat-footed in the beginning. And it doesn't seem like even now we still have control of the coronavirus. Why is that, sir? Well, look, this virus has, has been well documented, released on the world by China. They were not entirely forthcoming. World Health Organization was uh, was slow to acknowledge the person-to-person -person spread. But can I just tell you this, Gromer, having lived through a number of other infectious diseases in my time in Congress, I've never seen a response like is going on in this country at this time. Operation Warp Speed, the development of viral countermeasures, the development of a vaccine, which incidentally is likely to be here uh, by the middle part of the fall. This is unlike any other activity I have ever seen. Look, a little over two years ago, we worked on a bill called the Pandemic All Hazard Preparedness Act in the United States Congress, signed in law by President Trump in June of 2019, six months before the pandemic hit. Then when the pandemic hit in February, 
we had plenty of time to come back and study. Did the bill we passed actually address the problems? I could never get congressional Democrats interested enough to go back and do any real-time oversight into the bill that we had just researched and just passed. The other part has been testing. It's been hard, as you know. So, Dr. Berg, are you satisfied then with, with this nation's response to the coronavirus and where we are now? In Texas, the, the positivity rate this week was still over, well over 20 percent. The positivity rate for people who are symptomatic and showing up to have a test. Positivity rate for people who, uh, oh, for example, are being screened to come into the hospital and have a surgical or, or medical procedure done. The positivity rate in the asymptomatic population is less than one half of 1%. So it's, you know, it depends on which population you're studying. Is the virus a problem? And the answer is absolutely. The extensive community spread that is going on in the lower Rio Grande Valley right now, that is significantly concerning. There is testing capability that exists in our labs, in our research labs, in our academic medical centers that is not being used. And that's too bad. That needs to get off the sidelines and come in and, and, and help us with trying to identify people and do the appropriate surveillance and testing that is necessary. There are other things that can be done, but all in all, Gromer, when you look at the severity of this illness in a free society, which is after all what we are, uh, it's a tall order. And I cannot tell you that there is any other one thing. I mean, things were shut down, as you recall, through March and April. Devastating effect on the economy, devastating effect, devastating effect on people's lives. You actually could not so, do so more Dr. of that and be more successful. I hate to cut you off, but just in short, you are satisfied then with the nation's response this year to the coronavirus. Grover, well, I, I wish the virus had never come to our shores. I wish China had been forthcoming when they realized they had a problem. But uh, that was that was not an option. Moving on to another topic, there has been some discussion, doctors taking potential vaccines for COVID-19. You, you are a doctor. What do you think of that? Oh, I think that's, uh, you know, the, the, the good news on this whole story is going to be the, the development of viral countermeasures, Operation Warp Speed, and the development of a vaccine. I actually went online and, and I read an article in Gromer's paper about the uh, how you could uh, sign up to be a test subject, so I did. I haven't been contacted yet. When the vaccine is available, about it. It will vastly change the equation as far as the effect of the virus on our economy and our population. So I absolutely will take that, uh, that vaccination. And in the short time that we have left, recent polls show President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden neck and neck. Are you concerned about Texas? Are you concerned that it may flip? Look, I'm concerned about a lot of things right now, but the election is still many, many weeks away. Uh, we've all got a job to do, and if we do our job correctly and present our data to the voters, they will, I trust them to make the right choice. Trump is doing fine in the district that I represent, but I also recognize that that is not enough and that uh, I have work to do, yes, in Texas, yes, around the country, and, uh, and that's work that I'm perfectly willing to do. Well, doctor, you, you love making predictions on this show, as you know. You did so in 2016. Care to make one now? Absolutely. Vaccine will be available October 25th is my prediction. That's not apropos of anything. But with that data, Trump will be successful in his reelection yeah, well, in November. All right. Well, thank you so much, Congressman Dr. Michael Burgess. Thank you for being with us this morning. Great. Thank you. The political world will turn its attention to both parties' national conventions this week, which will be held virtually because of the pandemic. 
First up, the Democrats, who were scheduled to hold theirs in Milwaukee starting Monday. The Republican convention was slated for Charlotte beginning August 24th, but that too has been moved online. So how will the nature of the conventions impact voters? So, Gromer, tomorrow we begin the convention. Yes, the virtual convention, historic convention, uh, and we'll see how it goes. The, the challenge for, for Democrats will be to capture the energy and enthusiasm and passion that you see in, in the uh, convention halls and where delegates are sitting together, they're fired up, uh, they're reacting to the speakers. All of that is, are special moments. Even, as you know, Julie, the delegate breakfasts, where delegates from states get together in their hotel ballrooms, in, in some cases, and right. have breakfast and talk about politics and have speakers come in. All that's lost with a virtual convention. Well, and what's interesting, too, is like for us, when we're at the conventions, we get our new, like, we get what we need at the breakfast, talking right. to our people, getting their reaction. I mean, it'll be so different this year. Yeah, it, it'll be different. And the moments, and last week we, we talked to Todd Gilman about this, the moments at conventions that occur in live settings. And I'll give you a classic example. You remember. I know. I know exactly what you're going to say. 2018? Uh, or 2016. 2016. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, exactly. Yep. You're absolutely right. And remember, it, but, right? we, but all we kept saying is, we got to catch up with him tomorrow at the breakfast. Right. So it started during his primetime speech when he didn't endorse uh, President Trump. Basically, he said something. Vote your conscience up and down the ticket. Up and down the ticket. He got booed. You know, you can't get booed, right, in a virtual setting unless you hear people booing from their computers, and that's not likely. But then you're right. That set up that next morning for the breakfast where all the cameras were there, the delegates were there, the Texas delegates, and what an extraordinary moment because they let him have it. And it was the first time, really, that Ted Cruz really heard about it, got taken out to the woodshed by conservative Texas Republicans, and that was an extraordinary moment. And it's those moments that you miss that you will miss at a convention. I, both, both parties will miss it. I think, too, it is interesting with the convention. Like, when you and I are in the convention hall, we see things one way, and then you see later how things were perceived outside of the convention. Yeah, you do. And it, sometimes it's totally different. It, it is totally different. And we, we talked about being inside the hall and what delegates feel, the energy they feel inside the hall. But you also have a live experience looking at your television. You can tell the difference by looking at a, a recorded speech or somebody from their basement versus someone in front of a live crowd. There is a difference. You can feel and the energy. And there's a pause. There's and a there's... pause. You know, Obama's keynote address in 2004 was well received on television. Sarah Palin, in, in 2008, her vice presidential nominating speech was a hit inside the convention hall for conservatives and outside on television. It's the challenge is to get that sort of reaction, to get that sort of buzz, and then the bounce that follows from a virtual convention. You'll get fundraising, you'll get, you know, we, we saw the Democratic Party a few months ago stage a virtual convention. It was all right, right? They, they, it's they, just different. They raised money, it was different. Well, it's hard to hold attention 
to people other than the true believers if they're just looking at a, a canned speech. From a journalism standpoint, I think too when you're all together, it's interesting. Like whereas now, I'll, if something happens, like you'll have to, I'll have to pick up the phone and call you right. and say yeah. it. So that that makes it a little bit different too. It does, and there's that a, for us. There's an entire you know, the people were probably disappointed. The people of Milwaukee and for Charlotte, sure. right? Because they get to put on a show. They get to showcase their city, the culture. You know, people go and have, have it's beer town, have beers, have the fish fries. Remember fries, you know? Cleveland? And because we're, we're like, how exactly are they going to do this? And it was flawless. Yes. Remember getting those, like, once you're in the zone, the shuttles were there every two seconds. We really didn't know how it was going to be. It was Flawless. Cleveland was able to showcase a city on the on the rise, a different Cleveland that a lot of people probably remember, and they were able to show cat, showcase the best parts of their city, put on a, a flawless show, and so Milwaukee won't get a chance to do that, you know, because Milwaukee is not on everybody's destination. It's a great. I, you know, I'm from Chicago. I like Milwaukee, but people don't get there. I was, time, right? I was so, excited to see both of these cities. Yeah. I mean, we've gotten, I mean, listen, we are lucky. We've gotten to see some great cities through these campaigns. Like, right. I mean, I, I fell in love with I did. I fell in love with Iowa, didn't you? I loved it. The people yeah. are so nice because they're so knowledgeable about the voting and the process. But we've gotten to go to some good places. Yeah, but we'll see how it happens. But I don't expect bumps out of these conventions, major bumps. So it's going to be on, it's going to be on the candidates up and down the ballot to sort of create their own momentum and figure out how, Julie, how to campaign in this pandemic environment because it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. So this may be campaigning in the, during a pandemic may be rea reality from now until November. And how it affects those campaigns will certainly be a story we keep an eye on here. Thanks to Beto O'Rourke and Congressman Michael Burgess for joining the show today. For more on Texas politics, visit NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.